This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips from the Motley Fool. He is Andrew Page from strawman.com. My only question, Ram, is uh, is strawman.com still open for premium members or have you slammed the door shut? Uh, we're recording this on a Thursday. The intention is to close it by Sunday, if not full by then. So we might be. We might maybe, be. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. This might be your last chance or you may be disappointed, but I'm sure there's, is there a watch wait list or uh, something? There is, uh, but yeah, just head to the website. You'll see uh, what the go is. And yeah, we'd love to welcome some new members. There so go. there's our second shameless plug for the week. Strawman.com. Uh, yes, gratuitous. Uh, mate, um, so look, <laughs> given given how busy you've been uh, reopening Strawman, I, I assume you had to miss out on your... Um, your hike up Kosciuszko this morning? Yeah, I didn't, didn't manage to squeeze that one in this morning, but okay. uh, we'll make up for you it. You did two yesterday, mate, so that, that's probably That's all right. Exactly. Yeah. Mate, the first question comes from, well, the message came from Jake. The question is, is from Ethan, and I love this question. You will too. Okay. He, he says, Dear Scott and Andrew, my name is Ethan, and my dad, Jake, listens to every episode on the pod machine. See, even hmm. Ethan knows it's a pod machine. I'm just about to turn... 10 and my dad has started to help me invest for my future as i was the very first grandchild on both sides of my family and knowing i would be spoiled rotten my dad asked my family and friends to not shower me in gifts of plastic toys rather he asked them to invest in my future and give me cash that we could invest each birthday and christmas in quality companies I have a modest portfolio, says nine-year-old Ethan, including a combination of companies and ETFs, and I'm adding to the gifts from family and friends by doing chores and investing half of the pocket money I earn, with the rest spent on gifts for my family and things I enjoy. My most recent purchases were a set of collectible football cards for my mum and a fishing rod to spend some quality time with dad on the weekends. Discussing, discussing your sage advice while trying to reel in a 15 kilogram carp. My dad tells me you can't provide personal advice, but I'm keen if there are any other lessons you know of that might help me along my investing journey. Thanks from Ethan. I'm not sure that's not the best wow. question we've ever got, Ram. It's got to be up there. And, and just quietly, there, there's the next Warren Buffett right there. Yeah. Well, he started um, earlier than Buffett did. Yeah, exactly. Buffett right. starts at 11. Yeah, if you haven't read The Snowball, which is the bi- biography, it's well worth a read. And and that was one of the things with Buffett very early on. He was he he started early. And I think he said himself, like, that was his biggest advantage. Um, so well done, Ethan. That is incredible. Your parents are very smart people. Um, I bet you right now, and I definitely bet in another 10 years, when you look at what you could have had is in some, like, you know, plastic toy versus what you have now, you'll be the happiest kid and well ahead of all of your peers. So that's just, it's just awesome. Um, yeah. Chef kiss. Mwah, I got nothing to add. That's it. That's it. Beautiful. It's a very uh, Charlie Munger response to a very Warren Buffett style investing approach, Ram. <laughs> yeah. uh, Ethan, you are a gun, mate. You're doing all the right things, buddy. Um, I am really, really impressed with you and your dad for thinking about the future because I don't know, mate, when I was 25, I couldn't think about the future well enough and certainly not as well as you are. So you are absolutely (laughs) doing fantastically well. I hope the market is treating you well. Uh, Mate, I'm just going to tell you a couple of things that I kind of want you to keep in mind as you continue to invest. So hopefully these things will help you kind of, you know, manage manage that process. So firstly, mate, you are, you're almost 10. Uh, 
there will be really bad times in the market sometimes. And those times might last for a month or a year or a couple of years. And you'll see your portfolio go down and you'll look at dad and say, dad, I'm losing money. Why, why am I doing this? Why did you say I should do this? Uh, and the answer is, mate, because over the long term, uh, it's worth it. Get dad to print out the Vanguard index chart for you, uh, or at least show you on the computer or the phone, uh, and you'll see some really down periods, but you'll see the long-term results, which are really, really good. So just be prepared for some times that feel like they're bad at the time. Uh, and mate, can I tell you, uh, 59-year-olds, not about nine-year-olds, 59-year-olds still get this wrong. Uh, so there'll be bad times. It'll feel rubbish. You'll kind of get like, oh man, what am I doing this for? I'm losing money. I could have spent that money on a toy or something else or another fishing rod. Uh, why am I doing it? The answer is because it'll come good. So just just kind of keep the faith, mate. Stay the course if you can. Um, try and try and push through. But you're, you're doing a really good job of putting lots of money aside. Um, and hopefully you're enjoying seeing that money grow time, sometimes uh, in, in, your, in your account. So that's, that's super awesome. Um, these are habits that will really look after you right through your life. The good thing for you is you are so young, you have so much opportunity ahead of you that you can kind of, if you work and save and invest really hard for a while, the rest of your life will be actually much easier because compounding works even when you're not adding even more money. So keep adding, keep up the, keep up the, uh, keep up the, the hard work. Last thing for me is know that the hard work will pay off. Sometimes it won't be fun putting half your chore money into investing. You know, you want to buy, you want to buy a toy and it's, you, know, you haven't got quite enough because you put the money in investing. Uh, I have an 11-year-old son, Jake, uh, sorry, Ethan, and, uh, and he you know, gets a bit grumpy with me sometimes when he wants to buy something. And I say, well, no, no, some of that money's got to be invested. And it's like, well, I want the thing now. Uh, it's really hard to kind of put that off, right? And kind of, you're denying yourself something that would be really cool to have right now. Uh, but the good thing is, mate, at some point, what you'll be able to do is have all the good things you want, or at least most of them, because your portfolio will grow. And that's when you'll really be able to pay off. Ask your dad uh, how much earlier he wished he'd invested or how much more he wished he'd put aside. Uh, and he'll tell you, I wish I'd done more because now I could do different things. So that's my, my key message is when you're doing it, remember that you're not doing it for its own sake. It's not just about having big numbers on a, on a spreadsheet or on, a, uh, on an app or on the, on the computer. It's about putting yourself in a position where you can do some of those things that you actually want to do. And the good thing is, if you put a little bit of that stuff off now, if you can sort of deny yourself a little bit now, you're able to have a whole lot more than that in future when that money really builds up to a, to a decent amount of money. So that, that's, man, I'm just, I'm so stoked, so impressed with what you're doing. Uh, keep up the hard work, mate. Um, keep, keep working hard, keep saving hard, keep looking after your mum and dad and, uh, and you will be, you'll be absolutely, you'll be completely fine. So well done. Nice. Mate, um, Ethan, brilliant question, mate. Thank you. Ram, yeah. we've got a question from Joel who says, Hi, gents. Firstly, thank you for all of the hard work you and the team put into creating the podcast. It has truly been the <laughs> Can I just, sorry, I've just got to disavow the listener okay, there. No, no, don't, 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 don't pull the curtains okay. in the back. Okay, right. okay. We, we'd be having a chat anyway, right? Like, it's just, you, you put a microphone on and, you know, yeah. it, 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 it's hardly work. It, it's like, we like to pretend we're doing work, but it's, yeah, it's not. Uh, yes, it's not, it's not a lot of hard work. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Thank you for that. Anyway, Joel says, he does say it's hard work. I, d I don't want to tell Joel he's wrong around. It'd be, it'd be rude to suggest Joel was wrong. Let, let's just, let's just, just tell him he's right. We're putting a lot of hard work into it. Giving, giving two gas bags the opportunity to talk is, 
<laughs> more just, enabling behavior than than i don't know it's it's yeah i, I don't mean, know how old joel one. is but just let me say joel it's uh waldorf and statler uh in the, in, in, <laughs> in, in, in the muppets uh in up in the up in the box watching the show they that wasn't working we're not that, that different really no, no, no. If you don't know the reference, look up Stoldorf, uh, Waldorf and Stadler. Anyway, he says, uh, it has truly been the catalyst for some life-changing decisions, which is pretty cool. Well done, Joe. I know this has been answered before, but I can't find the episode. So here goes. What impact will there be on returns, he says dividends and price growth, as more and more people pump money into ETFs? Can the ETFs become saturated financially, at which point they won't provide the returns we're all hoping for? i.e. 10% year on year. He said, another question, if you'll allow it, what other investments outside the frequently discussed shares, Bitcoin and property, do you guys have any interest in? Classic cars, basketball cards, whiskey? Love your work. Rant on. Cheers from Joel. Let's do the first question first, Ram. What happens when the ETFs get saturated? I actually heard a stat the other day, I haven't verified it, that last year was the year, the first year where ETF flows as a collection outpaced uh, 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 traditional flows direct into into equities. So they're a, they're a massive and growing force. And it's an, it's, I don't necessarily mean to make this mm. sound critical, but it's a non-thinking allocation of capital. Yeah. It's yeah. just like yep. whatever the, it's passive by definition, right? Um, I've had people remark, in fact, I don't see why they, they're not true, but there is a, there is less of a, um, analyst community really focusing on these things and the amount of coverage that you see in the market is narrowing more and more towards the, the sort of the top end. Mm. I think long-term it doesn't really make any difference, but I think potentially what it does do when you've got all these passive flows, maybe it, it, it means that there's less of a force in the market that's more actively valuing individual stocks, mm. which can mean that you see these big variations from time to time. We've, we've remarked recently, in fact, on, you know, in, in earnings results where even some very big companies in recent years are showing massive movements 30% movements. I'm just, you know, um, seeing an example today, in fact, on 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 results that were, you know, you know better than expected, obviously, but but not that much mm. sort of different. It just, it feels as though it, it leads more to that phenomena, but nothing in a way that I think, again, would change anything that you're doing. And in yeah. fact, if you've got the tolerance for that greater volatility, should that even be a, a, a factor, could be to your advantage if, if there are less eyeballs on the actual company and, and more people just blindly putting stuff in yeah i think um and here's the thing right etfs the, the, the amount of money in etfs doesn't change the amount of money in the stock market so they can't get saturated in any meaningful way i mean if everyone decided not to buy bhp shares and only ever invest in bhp through an etf then yeah we lose that price, so-called price discovery mechanism so that that's kind of real and you kind of talked to that a bit ram um in terms of the way, you know, who's looking at it, who's, who's taking the opportunities. Mm. The reality is, you know, here, here's the other thing. For, let's say 90% of the market was owned by ETFs, right? Let's just, let's just put that number out there. Yeah, there it's always be, good to go to an extreme example to right, highlight a point. Right. Yeah. Now, but even then, there'd be 10% of the volumes available in the market, which might take us back to, what, 1980? You know, the, mm -hmm. the, when the market was when the market was a tenth of the current size, it operated just fine. It might have been mm -hmm. perfectly efficient, and there are definitely more yep. efficiencies through. We talk about efficient markets. I don't mean that in the sense of everything's priced correctly. I guess I mean efficiency. Maybe we should choose a better word. In the sense that if there's a lot of buyers, a lot of potential sellers, the price is probably going to be you know just closer to right. If you got if you got eighty five houses being sold and eighty five potential buyers, they're going to work out the price. You got one house being sold and, and two buyers. 
the chance that price is is appropriate or approximate is, is probably not as good. So mm-hmm. more buyers and more sellers does probably mean less inefficiency in pricing. But you know, if, if 90% of the market was ETFs, it'd still be fine. There was nothing wrong with the stock market in 1980. You know, and so the you know, if 90% of the volume went away because ETFs just did their thing, it, I just don't think it'd be an issue. I really, really, really don't see. At 99%, maybe we start to have a problem, but it's never going to get to that point. Um, yeah, logically, at one, like just to take the most extreme example, at 100%, yeah. there is no price discovery. Correct. Exactly. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy at that stage where every fund, every new dollar that comes in adds adds to the value of, of a company, regardless of what the company is sort yeah. of doing. Yeah. So you're right. Where's that point? We're a mile away from that point. Uh, you know? And we're never going to get there because there's always going to be someone who says, at that point, I'm going to start buying individual stocks instead and make some yeah. money because the market has... Yeah, the, the, yeah. It, yeah. it'll get arbitraged away at every point until until every fund manager and every private investor stops investing yep. there is no risk of saturation with etfs yeah as i said but as that it's um a spectrum right and as mm-hmm. you go further to it I, that's my point Correct. of volatility yeah, or, yeah totally. you know less less coverage on on a lot of these companies 100%. it's a bit like that when you're thinking of efficient markets it, the way i i like to think about it, it's a bit like the jelly bean contest you might see at your school fate <laughs> yeah. where someone puts a whole bunch of jelly beans in and you've got to guess the number yeah. and whoever gets closest wins yeah. it's well studied and i think there's also examples with guess the weight of the bull at the county fair and, and mm. the rest of it but everyone individually statistically is usually you know way off but collectively it's like eerily ac- accurate like really eerily accurate and the more people who are in the guessing game mm. the more accurate it is yeah. so i think that's a useful analogy here right. if yes. if if there's a jelly bean contest and uh 90% are only just guessing what the last guess was and yeah, there's yeah. the others who are doing it, you just you're just going to get the the, the the that that phenomena is not going to emerge yeah. Um, but as, as I say, look, over the long term, it probably won't make a difference. So, A, if you're an ETF investor, here's the bottom line. Mm. Don't worry too much about Correct. it. You know, exactly the market will be more or less efficient. Yep. If you're a stock picker, don't worry about it. In fact, just recognize it that uh, there might be a bit more distortion in the market, but Correct. it will still be reasonably efficient enough. But you don't want – again, as a stock picker, implicitly you don't want it mm. to be Mm-hmm. Too efficient. That's right. Yeah, totally. If you take the other end of the expectation, if it was a perfectly efficient market where yeah. everything was accurately priced, there'd be no so-called alpha. You wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to outperform the market, in which case, buy the damn ETF. So, As a stock picker, yeah. mate, I'm more worried about- I, I'm a million, percent more to, million times more worried about AI than, than ETFs. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because like, in terms of arbitraging away the opportunity, that, yeah, if there's less yeah. efficiency in the market, it's going to come from AI, not from ETFs. Like That's, that's, yeah. where, the, that's where the issue is. The other thing, by the way, is the returns that you do get from investing- are based on the company profits themselves. And so the who owns the shares kind of matters for a a percentage point, half percentage point of returns annually, something like that, maybe if you're lucky. And again, I I don't want to kind of be too absolutist about it, but realistically, if BHP mines more stuff and Coles sells more groceries and Telstra makes more phone calls or sells more internet, that's what what drives share price. That's what drives the underlying value of these things. So the, the, the returns you get are not driven by that um, uh, you know, aren't driven by the the, in, the the opportunity for the stock picker is to take advantage of other people's inefficiency. It doesn't change the overall market returns. The market returns, if I get more, Andrew's got to get less. If I get more than average, Andrew gets less than average if the two of us are the only two players. That's just how it happens. The, the market, the, the value of the shares we own will still march upwards over time if they keep increasing profits. So just be also mindful not to conflate the opportunity for outperformance with the actual returns from the market itself. Yep. Nice. 
Hey, um, one from Kyle who says, uh, hey, fellas, I love the podcast. <laughs> I do find myself spamming the refresh button in Google Podcasts on a Friday Arvo and Sunday morning in anticipation for the new show. That's very kind of you. I don't know. Hopefully we're getting it on time. Uh, I'm relatively new in my investment journey, says Kyle, but I feel I have a reasonable enough core portfolio of the Vanguard ASX 300 ETF and the Vanguard Global ETF. And I'm relatively happy to dollar cost average into these for the next 30 plus years with a dividend reinvestment plan for each. I did, however, says Kyle, start to invest for my kids in an S&P 500 ETF in my own name. Since then, I have thought, stuff them. I'm not sure I can support that, Kyle, but I'll take your point. I would rather educate them on investing rather than hand over a lump sum of money when they hit a certain age. Now I have the S&P 500 and the Vanguard Global ETF. And I understand there is some serious overlap in companies within these ETFs. Uh, Reddit, as you might know, has some very strong opinions on the S&P versus Vanguard global debate. Uh, I'm going to say, Kyle, that I would ignore anything Reddit has to say. Um, could you please have a chinwag over the pros and cons of keeping both or having one over the other? If you were to add one of these alongside your existing ETF, A6200 ETF, sorry, which would you add? Thanks for all the great listening, Kyle. So uh, Kyle's cut the kids off, which is up to you, Kyle. You, you, you parent your way, dude. Uh, uh, and, and no, I, I can get behind that. I can totally get behind that. <laughs> and now he's, uh, now he's thinking about the options between the two. Hey, Kyle, I will actually, I, I, I don't disagree with you, Ram. I will say one thing, Kyle, which is don't, um, don't uh, underestimate the value of them learning by seeing you do it in one form or another. So if you're not going to invest in their name, cool. Uh, educating them is one thing but remember it's all about you know uh, telling versus doing uh there's something in that right so involving them along the process is going to help that education sink in for what it's worth i'm not a teacher but for what it's worth just think about that so educating them about telling the things is one thing my young bloke's got i think he's he's a shares account it might have have like 180 bucks in it like it's nothing right but he's made 40 bucks and that to him is just that that's gold right so you you do you Kyle do whatever you want to do it's not my job to tell you how to parent but for what it's worth that is more valuable than if I just said you should invest because they might go up or look at this share price over here that I own or you know will these shares are now worth $20 they were $40 previously whatever they are Um, that's not true those numbers are made up but you know just just, just keep that in mind Uh, Ram S&P 500 or Vanguard Global either or both how would you deal with it both just right. take the easy answer. Yeah, you can do yeah. that. Why not? Yeah. Still only managing two things gives you a bit broader exposure. I mean, the, the real answer is, well, buy the one that's going to do the best. Yeah. Um, but I don't <laughs> know which one is going to do the best. I probably mean gun to the head. Yeah, maybe the S&P 500, right? Um, but yeah, it's, it's it, you can have your cake and eat it too here. You know, don't, don't, it's, it's a false uh, dilemma in a, in a way. You don't, you don't have to compel yourself to go one way or the other. Yeah, I agree. Um, and don't forget, Kyle, the overlap doesn't matter. Um, if I had two S&P 500 ETFs and had 50 bucks in each, or I had $100 in one of them, I have exactly the same exposure, exactly the same company. So don't worry about the overlap itself. Um, you've got less money in each than if you had all the money in one of them. Uh, so it's, you know, we talked about that you know, in a previous pod, might have been last week, the week before. Uh, this question came through before that. So hopefully, Kyle, we've already answered half that question. Um, oh, which do I prefer? I, if you're passively investing... Uh, I'd go global because it's global. There's, there's no there's no point or no need to cut yourself off from the rest of the world's stock markets for the sake of it. 
Um, if you want to make an active decision and say, I'm, I'm making a bet here, uh, a bet in a good way, not in a, not in a, you know, a gambling way, uh, I would expect the S&P 500 probably outperforms the rest of the world because just tends to, they've got the biggest and best companies. They're probably in the right areas and probably going to do pretty well. So if I was going to bet on one outperforming, I'd probably bet on the S&P 500. But passive investing is exactly the opposite of that. It's, it's, it's passive investing into a range of ETS with dollar cost averaging, if that's your view. Uh, and by the way, I'm pretty sure the US is about 65 or so percent of the VGS ETF anyway. So you're not, as Abraham said, you're not, you're not missing out either way. Yeah. Uh, go on. I was just going to make a, a point, though, in terms of not focusing on the price, you know, with your, your kids as you try and sort of teach them about the benefits of education and yeah. uh, of, of investment. I, 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 I agree. But at the same time, I think there's something very powerful about number go up. Yep. It, it shows the point. You, I, the way I like to handle it is because <laughs> this is what I do. Um, when the when the and I, very quick aside, I'm not I'm not promise I'm not segueing too far away here. But the kids each have a little uh, Bitcoin wallet. Oh, right? so they dear. they do they do chores. Your I pay poor them in, children in Bitcoin, right? Your poor children. Uh, and there's no other. There's just between us, right? There's no middleman there. It's it's beautiful. I don't have to sit fill out forms. They can see what they hold. They can see it grow as they do more chores. Uh, and right. it's and it's great. And so the way, so not to make it about that, but do you, do you convert Australian dollars for them though, or you tell them how many Bitcoin they own? The the app will do that for you. So well, it'll show a, you how one much one Bitcoin's only with one Bitcoin. What's the point? Well, that's go what on. I say. Exactly. It's, it's <laughs> keep, exactly what keep, I say. Keep going. So so when it's pumping and it's pumping at the moment, yeah. um, I'm I'm <laughs> like, hey, look at this, and they're like, oh my god, this is incredible. I want to do more work so I can get more, and then it nice. can grow more. And when it goes down, because you know, let's face it, it's pretty yeah. volatile. Um, it's like, oh my God, this is so good. Now you can get more bang for your buck. Because I actually pay, I, so the notion, like you wash the car and I'll give you 10 bucks, right? Yep. For example. So I, on the app, you transfer 10 bucks. It just does it in Satoshi's kind of thing. Right. So it's, it's kind of, I, and I think, so again, let's not make it about Bitcoin. In terms of shares, right? Yeah. That's the way you frame it. When it's going up, don't yeah, don't nice. hide from that because I think it's I think you you come for the gains and then you sort of stay for the the long term wealth creation. You know, you come for the easy gains and you stay yeah. for the long term wealth creation. Yeah. And it get, it's powerful. I think all of us would be lying because oh, I'm not influenced by that BS. We all are, and yeah. it's a good it's it's a, it gets you going. It gets you motivated. It reminds you why you're doing this kind <laughs> of stuff. But when it goes down, rather than going, mm. oh, it sucks. It's gone down. It's like no, no. Isn't this exciting? We now get to acquire more of this great asset at an even cheaper price. Mm. Because as long as I think it's going to be worth more in the future, any just, I mean, I don't want it to go up now, right? Mm. So you can always frame it in a positive way so that the right lessons are learned. Mm. And it's a subtle point, but I, just, I, I wanted to expand on that. Don't shy too much away from the price. No, that's right. Actually, and I'm glad you made the point. I guess what I was saying was telling them about the price of Woolies in the paper or online as opposed to the value of the shares you own is a different yes. thing. It's very yes. hard for me to conceptualize that. That's why I'm in favor of, and again, Kyle, I'm not telling you what you should do, but that's why I'm in favor of, of my black, black having his own account because the dollar value of the account moves rather than this yep. arbitrary thing out there. Look at Woolworths. They were, folks, they were 20, now they're 40. Isn't that great? He's like, well, I don't yep. really care. It's not really about me. It's like over there and it's, you know, whereas if you say, hey, your, your account's gone up from 20 to 40 over five, you say, oh, oh, that's cool. I got $20 for nothing. That's really awesome. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. some of the lessons you can learn by doing, uh, not just by being told. That, that was my point, but I'm, I'm glad you clarified that. Thanks, Ray. Yep, yep. Hey, um, one, one from Tim, which starts beautifully. Hey, Andrew and Scott, thanks for all your ranty rants, shaking your fists at the sky 
and general advice only. <laughs> Yelling at clouds here. That's what we, <laughs> that's what we, that's what we do. Trying <laughs> to hold back the tide. Wish I was asking a question about Bitcoin and property to hear you go off, says Tim. But afraid this is something a little more normal. It's all right. I'll, I'll squeeze it in there. Oh, you already have. I've been following your advice of doing the work to try and figure out whether I should sell my employee shares and put them into another asset. In order to do this, I want to try and evaluate what I think will happen to the share price of the company I work for, i.e. the asset I own, then consider if there is a better company to put it into. In evaluating the company, I've hit a problem. I'd love your thoughts on. It essentially has two parts to the business. He says they're both in the IT service industry, but this really isn't an industry question. Given both offerings have different market trajectories in terms of growth, etc., how would you go about evaluating the different contributions to the company's share price now and in the future? Oh, excellent. So question. this company's got a, an infrastructure business and a, and a, a, um, a services business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He says, my question is, how do you evaluate or how do you value a company those two or more different product lines and their contribution to future growth. Again, thank you for the great informative dialogues. In brackets says monologues, question mark. Keep <laughs> up the great work. Cheers, Tim. I reject the fact that Ram and I just go off on rants by ourselves for a little bit of time that eventually remove the other blokes here and we've got to come back to something. I reject that entirely. We've never, ever, ever done that. Not true. Not um, true. Yep. Ram, uh, two, bit of two, two different business lines. Uh, Tim's trying to work out what to do with that. Yeah. How do, you, how do you think through the the the, the analysis of, of a business with two two different you know uh, sources yeah. of revenue and profits? It's, it's super common. I think almost all businesses I look at have various segments. You know, there's very few that are just purely one specific product or service. Yeah. yeah so it can be hard. In fact, as a early segue, I think that's where you often see the most uh, capital destruction, mm. where a company that has a nice little business that sort of put them on the stage. They have a. They, there's nothing worse than you know a board with too much money in its pocket, right? Oh, and yeah. you want to grow, and it can often be used to sort of expand into areas where you don't enjoy the same strengths. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are times where it's like this makes perfect sense. We've got an op we've got an advantage here. We can exploit it over there. And, and companies have had a lot of companies have had a lot of success with that, mm. but not always, and and probably more often than not, not. So, um, and as an investor, when you're looking at stuff, I, I've I've had many examples where I've actually not done that great with a company I've identified where I just love one segment of the business mm. and actually proves out the thesis over time. It just keeps delivering good top line growth, uh, a, a leader in its chosen niche, you know, real sales coming through the door, the business more or less if that segment at least maintaining its costs, great. Um, but then you've got to weigh that against this other thing that's quite not working and has required them to double their sales force. And now they've had to buy another factory and all of this other kind of stuff. So it's really hard. Mm. But I would look at it as two separate businesses. Yeah. You know, you have to do a bit of thumb sucking with how you allocate the cost, but don't, don't overcomplicate it. And, and, and then add them together mm. at the end. Uh, it's, you know, so there's, there's a whole a whole bunch we go into into in detail there, but that's basically <laughs> how I would look at it. Yeah, there there all, are also lots of examples of where companies have had multiple segments and others. Some of some of those segments have really waned, but the strength in the remaining segment and the recognition of the advantage uh, that that company has there by the leadership team to to sort of cut and run when is necessary and to mm. double down on the things that are working well can mean that even if you are buying a, a business which has a pretty ordinary part but a really attractive part can end up being fantastic and and, and often there too you see companies spin out spin things off right it's like we're just going to focus on this from now on um so it's it's 
it's it's not an it's an easy answer conceptually. It's not an easy answer when you have to go through and try and and tease a business that is joined at the hip apart and value it separately and add it together. It's it's very it's very hard. But that's kind of what you got to do. Mm. Or is yeah, there an a, easier way? No, no, it's not. Um, well. I think, I, I think, you know, the old line, the old Einstein line, make everything as simple as possible, but no simpler. It's probably what comes to mind. And I think you at least yeah. owe it to yourself to understand the different component parts of a business and the relative dynamics in that business and the likelihood of those changing. All I would, all I would say, and I know you're on the same page here, Ram, is don't multiply the variables for the sake of it because you potentially multiply the error in either direction. So if... The businesses are growing roughly the same rate. And if they're likely to keep growing at the same rate, you can contact the whole business as a whole. It's only where their futures diverge that you need to be mindful of that. If the better quality business is going to decline or or grow less slowly than the the rubbish business, then recognize that over time, the business is going to get worse. If the reverse is true, then the business is going to get better. And you can afford to allow for that. I, I think, so do the work absolutely. And Ram's absolutely right about doing it bit by bit. I would just kind of just before you go too deep in it, ask yourself, firstly, what's going to happen? The other thing is, by the way, whether you know or not what's going to happen. Um, there's a great, I've told, I haven't used this example for ages, Ram. Um, there's a great example, and I think it might be from the little book of behavioral investing, but I can't remember. Um, they, they gave people five data points and asked them to forecast or estimate a future or a result or an outcome. I can't remember what it was. And people made their guesses. And they were asked them to also rate, or rate the confidence level they had in that guess. So, okay, I think this is going to happen and I'm 55% confident or 50% or 20%, whatever it was. Then they gave them another 15 data points and said, I'm making those numbers up, but it's roughly directionally mm. correct. And they mm. said, right, now what do you think the outcome's going to be? And they gave a guesstimate. And now what's your level of confidence? And they did that. What the, what the researchers found is that the guesses were no more accurate with more information, but the confidence level went through the roof. And... So you ask yourself, hang on, I felt more confident even though I wasn't more right. Why? Because more data points made me feel like I had more control, more, more ability to assess an outcome. And I say that only because part of in my experience thus far, and I, I reserve the right to change my mind, um, part of my experience so far is that we need to be really careful not to overcomplicate things and in doing so convince ourselves things are true or right when we're just really responding to having more data points of stuff. Um, so I hope that I hope that makes I hope that makes sense. I like um, the way you're doing it. I think you're absolutely right to do it that way. I just would be mindful of if you're not sure, it, you potentially run into areas where you try and be more clever, and then you convince yourself you're probably more right. Um, keep it as keep it as wide as you can without doing it recklessly. In other words, if you if you do know they're different businesses, if you do know their rates of growth are going to be different, then yes, as Ram says, analyze them as different businesses and work out what comes next. You should absolutely do that. Just be mindful not to overweight your confidence level because you feel like you've dug deeper and therefore you must, your answer must be better. Because statistically, at least with that piece of research, and I would argue it's almost certainly true in investing in general, um, more information doesn't necessarily add to uh, accuracy, but it absolutely adds to, frankly, misplaced levels of confidence. Yep. Well said. Any more on that, mate? No, no, I love that. I, I, I have nothing to add, as Charlie would say. <laughs> oh, here's a question from Martin. Martin, please don't throw me under a rock, uh, under a bus here. Here's I'm always Scott- excited when you when you preface oh, it by that because I, I know, know it's going to be something that you you're going to hate and I'm going to love. Well, 
talking about that, but he says, Dear Scott and Ram, I've been contemplating the fascinating dynamics between property and share investments in Australia. Hence my site. <laughs> Prompted go. by the recent economic shifts and your insightful discussions on the... What did he say, Ram? On the... Pod machine. Pod machine. Well done. Thank you. From my perspective, it seems that these two investment avenues are gradually diverging, each unveiling distinct challenges and opportunities. So I like the way that Martin's addressing this one. On one side, the property market appears to be adopting a more exclusive stance, with prices escalating and accessibility diminishing for individuals like myself and the average worker. The barriers to entry create an impression that property ownership is reserved for those on the top economic bracket and those already well-established in the game. I'm thinking boomers and their kids poised for the property relay, he says. Better with the property ladder, I suppose. <laughs> Shifting our focus to the shares scene, says Martin, it's evolving into the more approachable friend at the financial party. Smaller investments, quick liquidity, and the ease afforded by the information boom, tech advancements, and user-friendly brokerage platforms make diving into shares feel less like rocket science and more like a casual chat. It's the kind of financial gathering where even first-time investors can jump right in. Mm -hmm. Considering this scenario, says Martin, one might envision that over time, the property market could transform into an exclusive club for a few, while the doors of the share market swing wide open, welcoming a broader spectrum of new investors and leading to a notable increase in volume. Have you ever envisaged a future scenario where the Australian investment landscape significantly polarizes in this manner? I'm keen to understand the potential outcomes, both positive and negative, as a significant, uh, sorry, such as a significant portion of average income individuals entering retirement without property holdings and the possibility of economic bubbles emerging due to the large influx of new investors and capital into speculative and non-speculative shares. Thanks for your time and dedication to always making finance more digestible. Full on, Martin. Isn't that a hmm. great question? Gosh, there's so so many different directions. To I go know. There, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Let's I see mean, how we go. Let's try it. Um, so I do think the demographics are shifting. When you and I got into this game, mate, mm. the only any financial service oriented provider, their clients are ninety percent male, yeah, and they're fifty plus, yeah. Uh, that that is just the demographic because uh, I don't know why it just is. And, and any and company generally are, well and truly above average wealth. Oh yeah, yeah, you know, and and but I reckon it has changed over time for some of the reasons that were just raised. And it, largely being that a lot of people are just sort of locked out of property. Mm. So I was like, well, I think property is still the goal. And that's, it's actually a very noble goal because I want to live somewhere. So I might go on, on, on that kind of ramp. But it's somewhere right. that I can – I'm not keeping my money in the bank where inflation mm. is going to eat it away, you know, quite significantly. Yeah. So I, I've got to invest. And it's easy yeah. to invest now. So I think we, we – I know with my company, we're, we're seeing younger and younger people get more and more interested. I think that's actually a real, real part of the reason. And I – I do think that it, and on the other side of it, once you've gotten to that stage where you've built enough up through your savings and your investing, say through shares, mm. and you buy a house, it is such an incredible stretch to get into the housing market mm. that, that that's it. Onto your only ladder, asset is onto the property ladder. <laughs> um, is, is your only, all of your economic energy mm. is dedicated to sustaining that mortgage and will be for the next 30 years of your life. Mm. And so it's a great shame because there's there's capital that's tied up in that. And not that, again, not that housing isn't a noble cause and a, a very basic and understandable desire for all of us to have a, a place mm. of security mm. and shelter to, to sort of call home. 
But I'm not starting a business. I can't afford to do that while I'm paying this mortgage off. I'm certainly not investing in the share market. I don't have any money to invest in the share market. Everything's on this thing. And we as a society and as an economy are far weaker as a result of it. And yeah, I do think that a lot, Some well, my personal view is, is that I don't know over what time frame, but over some time frame, the later you get into this sort of, um, I was going to say Ponzi, uh, that's not the right <laughs> word, this ladder, you know, there's, there, we discussed this on Friday, right? You need, the, the, very, the very notion of this is that you need more people to come in at the bottom. Yeah. To lift up your price, to give you more equity, so you, and then someone to make room at, above you. You need that sort of escalator, perhaps more than a ladder, for that whole thing to work. And it's just such a stretch. It, unless you have equity, unless you're more than Gen X or above, it's just, as I said on Friday, it's so un, unworkable. So I'm saying two things here. On one hand, yeah, that's good for the interest in the share market because people are locked out of the property market. But then it flips on its head. Once you do manage, if you do manage to get into the property market, because you ain't doing anything else for the rest of your life, you're a debt slave, like like so many of us. Mm. <laughs> it's depressing. It is. It's um, it's a real challenge. This one, mate. I, so I'll take I'll take a slightly different perspective, Martin. I think I, I Ramey may disagree with this. I, I the rate of home ownership isn't declining that dramatically. I don't. I don't personally expect there to be a dramatic shift in the rates of home ownership over time. I think it'll continue to decline. Um, now that again, the, the thing about this is no point making the predictions because when I say that, I'm saying if nothing else changes, in which case, you know, like the famous Steve Keen bet of you know property price will crash. Oh yeah, well, they didn't because someone the government did something. It's like yeah, that's kind of the point, right? So, um, you know, will the government do something? I don't know. Uh, I think I think the rates of home ownership will continue to decline very well, moderately slowly in, in absolute total population terms for an extended period of time. Uh, frankly, we'll end up with boomer in it or you know kids of boomers inheriting the homes anyway. So kind of there's there's a you know there's a there's a cycle there somewhere uh, and there's a, there's a natural um, maybe there's not an equilibrium, but I just don't think it's going to be rapid. So I think I don't I don't share your view that it becomes property ownership becomes the um, uh, the remit only of the exclusive moneyed few uh, in, in, in any relative sense. I think there'll be more renters, fewer owners, but I don't think the percentages move that dramatically. I, so that's, that's not a property. Um, I, I argued long and hard for a removal of negative gearing for uh, residential property, which gets me flamed on Twitter regularly. I don't really care. Um, I think it's- I wonder if the people who flame you have uh, a negatively geared structure does. underway. Well, the thing is, I've always said, well, you grandfather it. So I still don't know who complained. People say, oh, it's not fair. Like, why do you care? Yeah, grandfather. Everyone's happy that way. Just but, but if you do, they still, they still complain about it. No, we still shouldn't do that. Well, why not? Well, because it's not yeah, fair to property right. investors. Well, they don't have to buy it. Like it's, anyway, yeah. that's a whole different, that's a whole different rant. Yep. Um, so I would I would get rid of negative gearing. Uh, I would I think I've, we talk about population. I think I think we need to resolve the, the housing affordability question, right? So the other thing is I, I kind of am a little bit optimistic that either through through you know responsible governments or scared governments eventually they do because stuff. Frankly, we talk about the you know you mentioned the boomers being mollycoddled before RAM because they own the properties. That's that's what happened Friday. That's absolutely true. Except at some point, if the ownership numbers do continue to fall, then the renters become a bigger group, and then we end up with so yeah. I kind of. There's almost a, you know, you've said before at inflation, the cure for high prices is high prices. The cure for housing affordability is probably housing affordability. It's, it's, it's probably, you know, at some level, there may mm-hmm. be a solution. So I, I, don't, I don't think we should extrapolate to the point where 5% of people own all the properties. I, maybe I'm entirely wrong, by the way. Maybe my kids hate me for saying that and being too, uh, too, too lackadaisical about it. But that's my thought. 
on on shares, Martin, I think the pros you've absolutely highlighted beautifully. The cons for me are almost in the way you've described it, depending on which approach or, or perspective you take, right? Um, so we say... Um, uh, to quote you, mate, quote, uh, platforms make diving into shares feel less like rocket science and more like a casual chat. Uh, it's the fi- kind of financial gathering where even first-time investors can jump right in, end quote, which is great in terms of access. It's kind of bad in terms of, so hang on, you don't really know what you're doing, you're just doing it because everyone else is doing it because the app you can do it on. And yeah. so that kind of easy access is a real challenge. I've said lots of times, this is, this is heresy a little bit, I'm not sure cheap brokerage is actually a benefit. <laughs> overall right if i if i can if i can buy and sell us shares with zero brokerage which i can through charles schwab that i happen to use i don't there's no um commercial relationship at all uh uh, am i gonna am i gonna think as carefully as i have to pay 100 bucks to do it probably not you know there there is friction is seen as universally bad because we kind of particularly by the the econocrats and the the idealists you know any friction is bad because it's friction so, well, okay, the behavioral economists might say friction points can be useful or not. Think about nudge, think about nudge theory, the whole, the whole idea of nudge that Thaler won a, a, a Nobel Prize about. If a friction makes you stop and think or changes the course, that's actually really, really, really useful potentially. Now, mm-hmm. we can argue about how expensive it should be and all that kind of stuff. I would just say, Martin, I love that everyone can access the market. I don't love that some of the gamified apps make it feel like, as you say, a casual chat. I mean, investing shouldn't be a casual chat it should be accessible and it doesn't need to be harder you know the, the financial types will make it seem so hard you couldn't possibly do it yourself i don't want it to be that either but i don't want it to be a, one of those uh, okay i i i scroll through facebook then i swipe right on tinder and then i buy 15 shares in this company that someone mentioned at, at dinner last night you know that that's kind of not the the, the casualness you want uh, a formal chat that, maybe? this is uh, this you know? is why you've got to watch the gamestop movie Oh, really? Dumb money. Yeah, it's a okay. great movie. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Yeah, I watched it again. So anyway, that, that, I, I won't keep going, Martin. I think, so I think there's, I, I'm glad investing is more accessible. I would love people to have made more of an effort to understand what they're doing before they choose to take advantage of that accessibility. Yes, that's a pipe dream. Um, what impact does it have on the market, investment landscape? I don't think hugely, mate. Um, Australia is so small as a share of the world's capital markets that I don't... People ask about... We've got a question about this somewhere else. Uh, we may address it at some other point um, about the amount of super going in. It, it, you know, is it possibly distorting a little bit? Maybe. Uh, but if that money's not making massive... The PEs in Australia aren't that different to the PEs in the US. In fact, they're lower. Despite we've got compulsory super and they don't. I, I think I think we can reasonably suggest there is no direct, obvious, unavoidable um, implication or outcome. So I don't... I love the question, mate. I love the thinking. I would be very surprised if the dynamics meaningfully change the investment opportunities for the thoughtful investor from this point forward. I do think it lends itself more to speculative bubbles because, yeah, I mean, true. again, again, I'm Exhibit A, um, yep. dumb, dumb Money, the, the movie. Uh, it, it, it is- That is absolutely true. You see it all, even on the ASX. Like, come, and again, not, not that the people are crazy to like these companies because there's always a nugget of truth to this. Like, yeah, there's a, there's a decent buy thesis here and under a certain set of outcomes. And then, yeah, it absolutely makes sense to kind of buy, but they yeah. feed on themselves. These Reddit <laughs> forums and Twitter, and they, it, that it's was ugly, the phenomena yeah. that GameStop taught us, right? Yeah. Was that this- it is a lot of shrimp, I think uh-huh. it's referred to in the industry. You know, it's such a pretentious term, something like that, <laughs> where, you know, all the small quote unquote retail uh, players are there and they're all, they don't know what they're doing, but, mm. you know, we're, we're here with the big bucks. But in aggregate, 
connected via the internet and with zero barrier access, yeah. it's actually proven to be a bit of a phenomenon. Right. So for to what degree, well, I don't know, we can argue that, but I think what it means for you as an investor who, who can enjoy all the, the great access that, that these things provide is to be wary mm. of of things that are running hot on a good story or or plummeting because, you know, um, the groundhog saw its shadow and ducked back into its hole. You know, there are, there are, I would, again, I'm always selfish on, when I see these things. I yeah, look at it through yeah, the lens yeah. of that. That equals opportunity for me. For me. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, it equals, and that makes me feel like it, yeah. I, it's a, it's a, I want to be careful with that statement. It's not like I'm so smart that I can know what the real value is and no one else can. But I just think on balance, when the more you see those distortions, mm. if you can be the person who looks a little further into the future and can be a little bit more emotionally disciplined, and not yeah. a lot, but just a bit more than the average, it, it can actually be a, a, really, a really good thing. But this is the world we live in. And and soon the bots are going to be out there doing it to an even greater degree. So it's going to get, it's going to get wild. And come back to the to the basics. You know, know what you own and why you own it, and be careful with the tool that you have. You've been yeah. given a very powerful tool, but um, it, it can be a force for good if you if you allow it to be. Sounds like a lightsaber. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's a light. It's, a, it's exactly what it is. It's just light side of the force, the dark side of the force. Uh, I'm going to go up there. My, my, my Star Wars language uh, uh, doesn't go deep enough to uh, add to that <laughs> analogy. So I'll keep moving. Mate, we didn't actually. I just remember we didn't answer the previous question. Do you invest in anything outside uh, shares, property, and Bitcoin? Uh, no. Any babies or. Uh, a wine, no. a massive wine cellar, or a couple of Bentleys locked up in a garage oh, look, somewhere. I, I don't. I've actually been very critical in the past. You know, it's like, why would you buy an antique car? It's just silly. You know, non-productive assets. And no. my view has sort of evolved <laughs> over the over the years. Let let us say on that. Is there a particular but reason? I, is there a non-productive asset you own that you may have changed your views on? The, the, well, the epiphany <laughs> for the epiphany for me has been that value is subjective and in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. I've said before, my mother-in-law collects antique dolls. Yeah. They're the creepiest, weirdest things you've ever seen. You know, I, I don't want them. I don't want to be in the same room as them. I wouldn't buy the whole collection for a dollar. I don't want them, right? I would pay, I would pay you to take them away from me. Yeah, yeah. But does that invalidate what she sees in that or yeah. the fact that there is a community a worldwide now connected yeah. via Facebook and everything else that, that love these things mm -hmm. and trade these things at great value? And it's just like, you, you can say, oh, that's dumb. You shouldn't like that. Well, they do. And some people like wine and some people like whiskey and some people like cars and some people like a painting by dudes that died, you know, a hundred years ago and it's just canvas and paint. So I think it's, it's, it's okay to go in that, but, but only if, I think mainly if you've really got a passion for, if it's collectibles, you, I think it makes less sense unless you yourself have a passion for it. So you're going to get some, at least you're going to personally get some intrinsic value sort mm. of from it. But the broader question is, do I think this thing will be continue to be rare and seen as valuable? Mm -hmm. You mentioned Star Wars. Here's, here's a hot take. Star Wars has long been seen as the ultimate collectibles. The right. kids are our age, Scott. When you know, if we if I kept my Han Solo yeah, figurine, yeah, that's right, in a box. Yeah, yeah. Man, I had the best Millennium Fal yeah. Millennium Falcon. It was so cool. It was massive. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I would, it'd be worth a thousand, two thousand dollars today. Yeah. I suspect that in another 20 years time, 30 years time, they're not worth actually that much. They'll have some residual value, mm -hmm. but the reason they have value is that kids of the 80s grew up. Right. 
and, and they had, had money. Disposable income. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it was very rare to get yes, a Han yes. Solo in, in the box or yeah, a Luke Skywalker yeah, in the yeah, box. Yeah. And so you, when you're with collectibles, you know, Beanie Babies and Pet mm. Rocks, fads will will come and go. Mm-hmm. Picasso will like we can go a thousand years in the future. A Picasso will always yeah. because of its historical and cultural significance will always have value. So I don't poo poo collectible. Collect, Bulls as much as I used to. Mm. Just be careful that there's not a fattish element to it. Oh, how can I not mention NFTs? You're like, oh yeah, like what a fad and a disaster that that kind of yeah. thing was. So a lot of people with some monkey JPEGs right now that don't look too clever. Yeah. So so by all means do it, but just be careful. <laughs> not for yes. me though, for for all of those things. Exactly. Um, I, I don't. I, I can't add to your points, and I don't own anything. I collect anything other than uh, than shares. So that's me. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Richard says, Hi Scott and Ram, I'm a long time listener to the pod and a subscriber to both Motley Fool and Straw Man. Richard, you're a good man. Firstly, I just want to let you know your pod has been a great influence on how I approach my investing. You recently said that investment is repeatedly doing a few simple things right. You probably said it more eloquently than that, though. I doubt it, Richard. Your pod is a weekly reminder to stay on track, and it's been instrumental in helping me to do just that. If that means you say the same thing regularly, we are so much better for it. So I hope you keep doing it for many years. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. It's very kind. To my question, I'm a 50-plus-year-old investor. I started investing at a young age, but I am a slow learner and only found the long-term quality thinking about investing over the last 15 to 20 years. Fair to say my results in that later period were light years better than my earlier investing. Quick my pause, son. quick pause to yes. interrupt. Can I say that I think almost all investors go through that story arc? <laughs> yeah, so we all start off with the rubbish. A we all, monger, but yeah, yeah well, there are a few exceptions, but I, yeah, I, yeah. I think it's part of the journey and it's, it's part of why you earn that longer term success is because you, you made the early dumb mistakes, but you learnt from them. Mm-hmm. You, you, re- uh, you um, circled back, you iterated. And and in fact, that never that process never stops. So I just I just want to call that out because I no, think smart. too often people think if you're not you're not you know sh- bolting out of the gates, then you're doing something wrong, and it's not. For yeah, you. good point. I've said many times my first investing was uh, old boss of mine telling me to swing trade, MIM yeah. outside some mines back in the day because that was you just buy it you buy it when it's low, you sell it when it's high, and you keep doing that over and over, and you make a fortune. Which was ah. you know it would be sensible if that's what it did, but it never did, and that's the that's the challenge. I was buying rubbish in the dot com bubble. Yes. Like, oh yeah. Insane. Too, insane man. stuff. Sausage, do you own sausage software shares? I owned Liberty One was the real oh, dog you? that I owned. Yeah, okay. yeah. Oh, no, that wasn't good. Uh, anyway, back to Richard. He says, my son recently turned 18 and I've been doing my best to get him to think about investing, money management and finances for some time. I've bought the books, got in the Vanguard chart, even told him chicks dig stocks, but <laughs> to no avail. He's just not interested. Other than continuing to hound him, do you have any tips, suggestions, torture techniques, and or gaslighting you can suggest to get him onto saving and investing? With many thanks, Richard. Rich is clearly of the uh, ends justify the means kind of school of thought, which I, which I can appreciate at least in this context. Yeah. Uh, what do you reckon, mate? How do you, how do you kind of get an 18 year old to start paying attention? Uh, it's, it's, I don't know if you can. It's so hard. Like they're their own people almost at this point. Show me the boy, I'll show you the man kind of thing. Like and I'm struggling with a 14 year old boy at the moment, right? <laughs> who happens to know everything in the world apparently as an expert on every topic <laughs> that you care, care to raise. And oh. 
And I just, I, I remember what I was like. I mean, some things you just have to learn and you just have to learn the hard way. I was so slow in the penny dropping on so many of these things. Um, and some people for, you know, it's not fair, but some people are just wired differently. Some mm -hmm. people are just really chill when it comes to volatility and, and are really able to think long-term. And there are those of us that are just living the here and now, you know, and it, so there's no easy answer. I, I would say the one thing you, you try not to do is I, I think there's something to be said for a bit of tough love. Mm. If, if the child, the young man, that young person never needs to learn the lesson. They probably never will learn the lesson. So if ever I win Powerball, whatever, I'm not giving my kids a bunch of money, mm -hmm. right? I, I think you will, as you mature and grow up, mm -hmm. and and you know, hopefully you, you as a parent lead by example, will just realize that, huh, I I shouldn't have perhaps bought that dumb thing, and if I did, I could have had this, and that you you'll. We all say, oh, I wish I'd come to it earlier. Well, that's what our kids will be saying when they're older as well. And there'll be a few people who were like, uh, who was it, Ethan? At the yes. start of yeah, the- I know, he was exactly like, right. He's going to trump all of us because yeah, he was right yeah, there at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I guess I'm struggling here because I, I, I would love to sort of say, ah, okay, so what you yeah, do is you yeah. tell them this, 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 and this. And they're an 18 year old and they're not going to listen. <laughs> yeah. They're just not. So really I, don't not. Have a, I don't have a good answer. No, I don't have a great answer, mate. Uh, the the point I would make, I suppose, which is what I would do is do the do the. I, I don't know if you remember being a kid, but as an adult now, I, I vividly and often remember things Dad said to me at different times in my childhood, experiences, sayings, you know, lessons, whatever else. Um, one of the one of the great ones of six. This is a tangent, but kind of relevant. One of the great things I remember is we were sitting at an intersection and. You could go two ways to where we we're going to go to. And uh, I think from memory, mum used to go one way, dad used to go the other. Anyway, and I, was, I was probably whatever I was, 8, 10, 12. I thought I knew everything. Oh, dad, mum always goes this way because it's easier. And dad said something like, towards the effect of, if I stop doing this because it gets hard, that's when I'm going to give driving away. And hmm. that, wasn't, that wasn't to tell me anything. It, maybe it was for all I know. And what always stuck with me with that was... You know, not, not don't don't make things easy for yourself. Of course, you should. But on the other hand, it's one of those things of you know, it's the perseverance and and the achievement and the and the and the kind of idea that um, you know, if you have to start cutting corners, then there's something to kind of think about. Now that that's just that's a personal example for me. Right? It's always stuck in my head. The reason I'm raising that, Richard, is I think what I would do to Ram's point, you can't tell them. What you can do is show and you can plant the seeds you can't necessarily make the plants grow you can't you know i'll i'll, I'll stop torturing the garden gardening analogy just leave the seeds around leave those little things that might germinate at the right time in the right place when he's thinking about his money when he's lost some money when he needs a new car when whatever oh that's right dad used to invest and then all of a sudden you'll hear coming back saying hey dad um you know what, what did you say about that thing or he just thinks to himself i remember dad saying i should invest in shares i might look at that now so I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't focus on that. I, I don't. You, you're you're ahead of us parenting wise. Both Andrew and I have younger kids, um, so you, you know more about parenting than we do. But my suggestion would be to plant those seeds and let them grow in their own time. Rather, you're not going to be able to do anything other than that. Um, so think about how do you talk around the house, around the table. What do you show? What do you do? Um, just 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 kind of provide the backdrop 
that he can kind of grab, you know, grab from, from his memory uh, when he needs those things, either directly by asking you or indirectly by remembering what you said or what you did or why you did it. Uh, that kind of stuff I think is useful. Um, I've got a, you know, the poem If by Rudyard Kipling. I still have never yes, done it. Yes, I love I, it. Isn't it? I Me too. It. So yep. I'm going to at some point put it in the house. Why? Yep. Because I want my son to have seen it often enough. Again, another personal story. We had a biscuit tin that we used for something else. I can't remember what. It used to live on the top of the fridge. And it was one that my grandmother had had at some point. And there's a quote on the side. And the quote was, I have often heard defended, little said is soonest mended. And mum and dad never said, hey, don't mouth off, don't, don't, whatever. That thing just stuck in the back of my head. And so I remember the quote now. I'd never, you know, this is more years ago than I should acknowledge. Um, the idea of don't shoot your mouth off, you know? And it wasn't, they, they didn't sit me down and say, look, Scott, here's what you need to know. Whenever you're talking to people, don't mouth off, don't carry on. Just, you know, keep your, keep your thoughts to yourself if, if it's not appropriate. Here's me doing a bloody podcast and gas bagging two hours a week. Uh, but that idea of, you know, just those things stick. So let it be the backdrop. Let it be the... Um, just yeah put it out there I, I, I'm badgering I'm banging on it but put it out there okay. go from there you just reminded me so a, a good friend of mine um, I've known since like we were little kids at school his parents had the desiderata on I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that properly on the wall which right. is another thing that like so Google uh, If by Kipling and also yes. Google the desiderata D E. S-I-D-E-R-A-T-A. Yep. It's the one that starts go placidly amid the noise and haste and remember what peace there may be in silence. And it just, it's this lovely poem nice. and it's like all this like worldly wisdom encapsulated yeah, yeah, yeah. in it. And they had it, they had it framed in this beautiful sort of uh, decorative yeah. wooden frame. And it's just like, it's always stuck with me because every yeah. time I was around playing at his house, it was just like, you'd read it. I think it was above the, t- actually it was, it was above the toilet. That's right. So you, you always <laughs> right, saw it. Right. There, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So depending like on whether you got girls or boys, you need one on the back and then maybe one on the on, on the door. But just make sure you've got it in there somewhere. Correct, correct. All right, I hope that helps, Richard. Uh, mate, this one's from Stephen. Um, hi, Scott and Ram. My question: What should we make of the boom in popular regional towns in recent years? I recently spent time in Barrel, Mittagong, Berry, Kiamari, etc., in the Southern Highlands and Illawarra region of New South Wales. I was intrigued by the booms. He says over 100% gains and the recent busts greater than 25% drop for four bedroom houses in these locations. The populations are only 5,000 to 10,000. Barry reaching a median of 2.6 million for a four bedroom house blew me away. Who can afford that, he says. He says, Scott, Scott, I recall hearing you say you live in Barrel. Congrats, if so. (laughs) Um, As an investor, what should I learn or make of this data? Do investing fundamentals apply to these locations? Do you know of investors on the lookout for the next Berry Barrel of Kiama? Do you expect these numbers to revert to the mean and continue to slide? They're gorgeous areas and it's no wonder they are popular. All the best and completely understand if this doesn't meet the threshold for a podcast. Thanks, Stephen. It does meet the threshold, Stephen, because Rand likes to rant about property. Uh, but also your question, I think, was great about investing fundamentals and taking, you know, taking the lessons and, and applying them to a different asset is, is hopefully what we are equipping some of our listeners to do. So I love that you've taken that and, and looked at property and asked some of those, some of those questions. Uh, what do you yeah. make, mate? Boom, then a bust. Uh, is there mean reversion? Is there something different about these areas? What, I what have we, thoughts. What do we take? You have I thoughts. Have some, I have, I have I some, I absolutely have some notes. Go the on. first thing is fundamentals always matter. Right. You know, they can be forgotten about, but they always matter. Whether It doesn't matter what you're investing in, you know, they, they matter. Um, so my 
my narrative, and that's all it is, this is the narrative I'm going to wrap around the data, is that we had COVID colliding with the tree change, sea change phenomena of a retiring generation that was cashed up and who thought that, well, I can downsize from Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, wherever, and go live out in the beautiful countryside, have all the peace and quiet, buy a much nicer home and still have cash left over. And they did. And they were accelerated by COVID as, as well. And so then you get, look, these small country towns, there's just not a lot of inventory. So again, you mentioned before, there's not many fundamental truths in investing, but supply and demand is one of them. <laughs> yes. And so prices went up very high. For anything that was sort of like, you know, nice um, out, in the, out in the country, it, it got snapped up. I then think that there was a lot of people, you see this if you watch a lot of uh, property shows as my, my wife does, like Escape to the Country or, or these <laughs> kinds of things. Whereas the reality of city life and country life is very different. And it's not for everyone, right? Mm. The pros and cons. And I think a lot of people moved back uh, in the end. So I think you get, like, there was a phenomena there. I think the second wave issue though, is you're now getting people sort of our generation and below who it's not like we're doing it because we want the I- uh, idyllic lifestyle uh, of the countries. I just can't afford Sydney anymore. I can't afford yeah. Melbourne anymore. I'm going to the country. Stuff it. Um, uh, and and I think part of the what put the brakes on that in previously was it was just there wasn't a lot of job opportunities out there as well. So that limited it. But now with the internet, a lot of people working online, a lot of people working remotely, I absolutely think that's another phenomena. So how that all translates out in price and the rest, I mean, that's just a huge discussion. I, I don't know. But at the end of the day, if I was looking at buying a property in at the back of whoop whoop or right in the middle of, of, a, of a CBD, I would, well, if it, if it was for an investment, I would want to know what's a reliable yield that I can get on that. It has to be your North Star, I think, as a property investor. We've lost sight of that because we're all sort of playing the, the greater fool theory at this point. Like, what can <laughs> I, I got to buy it and I'm going to flick it. You know, I might put an Ikea kitchen in, lick a paint and boom, I'm, and I'm going to create money out of nothing. Right. And good luck to you if that's, if that's what you're doing. But if, if I know that I've got an, a bunch of money in something that's going to yield me something that I consider attractive, well, even if the market cools to some degree, I've got something that's there and it's, mm. it's, and it, and it's real. And I would be, I would be trying to everything i would be doing to analyze the merit of this investment would be around my views on on that me personally mm-hmm. yeah so uh man i think <laughs> fundamentals are funny things um i kind of agree with you ram to a large extent the problem is a bit like a question about two different business units before there are two different buyers with two very very different approaches if I'm an investor, I'm absolutely thinking about rental yield and capital gain. If I'm an owner-occupier, I'm thinking, what can I afford? Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that means that depending on the different component parts of that in different areas, different property types, locations, that kind of stuff, you've got this real collision of, of two different ideas. Yeah. And then you've got the investor who, even if the yield is low, thinks, but I'll make it up with capital growth. Mm. And so what's a property actually worth? At one level, it's only worth what someone else will pay you for it at some level. Uh, but if you're a buyer, you gotta be really clear about what you're looking for and why you're looking for it. If you can justify paying $2.6 million to live in Berry because you've got the money and you like the area, then who am I to say you're buying, you're paying too much for that? Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's the intrinsic, there's, there's the value that comes in the lifestyle right. and that lives there. It doesn't fit on the spreadsheet, but yeah, why not? And you don't even, you don't even necessarily even try and put it in the spreadsheet somewhere. You just go, I, I can afford it and I like it, so I'm going to do it. Yep. Now you could, you could, you could pay half of that and go live somewhere else. You pay double that and live mm-hmm. somewhere else. 
Why that one? Most owner-occupier purchases are relatively irrational. I don't mean bad. I just mean there's not a lot of sitting down working out the numbers or, you know, we, we bought a, the house built before this one. Ruth, my wife used to joke, we spent, I spent more time looking for jeans than, than, than you know, we spent time looking around this house. And it's yeah. true, right? You kind of go, man, we just spent how much on, on a place we just kind of looked at twice and went, yeah, that's mm-hmm. cool, we'll buy that. Um, so... Uh, presuming rationality is is a mistake i don't even mean that pejoratively i just mean there are other things other than pure financial rationality that go into deciding where you want to live you like yeah. the area you like the house you can see a family growing up in it or you can see yourself retiring in it or you can see yourself fishing off the porch or whatever you know, whatever you want to do those things are i said fishing by the way dude um, I'm, I'm going through that right now as you know we're trying right. to buy a house and it's just like i'm no way i would touch this thing if it was an investment i can tell you that much like i don't think the rent i'm going to get is going to rationalize but right. i just need a place to live so i'm exactly proof positive of exactly what you're saying and so so that so that said and, and you know that, that then i go back exactly into your points which is people want to live there because they're nice places they can afford to they want to they like it they can afford to work from home that sort of stuff i think the we're back casting a little bit why is the rural boom because people could move out of the cities uh either get a bigger place or save some money and so the, either of those is attractive, particularly if you're downsizing or, or just simply, you know, not even downsizing in size, just downsizing in terms of financial exposure. You can get a million dollars out of a house you sell in Sydney, you buy in Kiama. You, you, you know, Kiama's on the south coast of New South Wales, for those who don't know the area, um, down an hour, is it 45 minutes past Wollongong, roughly? Um, you, you can do that and, and make some money, so that's worth it. You are someone who says, well, hang on, I can, I, I can afford a unit in Sydney or I can afford a house in Berry." okay, well, I, I want the house, so I'll do it. Or I can work anywhere because I am uh, you know, work from home or whatever, I can go wherever. That's how we moved to Barrel. We, I do live in Barrel. Um, the reason was I've worked for the Motley Fool from home for my entire time I've been at the Fool, just approaching 12 years, but not full-time, uh, 13 years, uh, including my time as a freelancer before that, I've always worked from home for the Motley Fool. So at one point, my wife and I went, well, hang on. <laughs> She's a consultant, does works in education. She can be anywhere uh, in, in the city or the state. She drives to, you know, she doesn't have a single workplace. So we literally went, well, hang on. <laughs> if we could do that, why would we stay where we are? No, we hated it. We liked it. I was like, well, actually, if we had the choice, what would we do? And we actually, we'll move to Barrel. We ended up spending about the same amount of money. We got a place with a bit of bigger yard. That was the, that was the trade-off. I was like, cool, we want to do that. So we did. Um, the ups and downs. I will say, so here's a couple of stats just for fun. Uh, according to the realestate.com.au property estimate, I don't know how accurate that is. It doesn't really matter. Um, they reckon I've made 80% gain in about eight years, which is fine, but not spectacular. Now, the dollars are bigger because we're talking about dollars and it was leverage and all that kind of stuff with mortgages. But, you know, it's, that's, it's, a, it's, you know, again, large amount of dollars increase. But percentage-wise, I could put the money in the stock market and probably done, you know, as well or better. Um, so, you know, it was a good, yeah. It was, it was a lot higher, by the way. It's come down, again, based on their estimates. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know if they're right or wrong. It doesn't really matter. Um, it's come down about quickly 20%. Um, we, have, we haven't got a valuation for a value out. We're not going to sell. We're not going anywhere. It's not an investment. It's a house to live in. Um, but yeah, so that, that went down. 20% about, down from, from when? Uh, I don't remember exactly when. You know, like a year I, ago or something? Yeah, or? probably. Yeah, okay. 18 months ago, whatever it was. You know, they give you that. They, they get a bloody email every now and again saying, you're probably, we think it's worth this much now. And it was mm-hmm. a decent amount higher 12, 18 months ago. I don't really know. Uh, down twenty percent since, probably based on local sales. Uh, you know, if, we'd, if it was an investment, could I have sold it at a higher price? Sure. Do I sure. care? It's gone up and down. No. Um, no. It's a place to live. Why would you? You're living yeah, there, exactly. and you will for the next. Yeah. Right. Hopefully, I came out in a pine box if I'm lucky enough. So, so that's you know, now that's me and my experience. You ask about the, the, the what's going on. 
I suspect that we saw a one-off boom because of COVID. Uh, I suspect there is a greater tailwind in regional areas because of the reasons Ram said, people downsizing slash tree changing and those who are saying, I can't afford to live in the capital, so I'll live in the regions. Uh, I expect that will continue to push regional prices up. Um, will they go up faster than city prices? I don't know because people get pushed out of those city regions because the prices go up in those regions. So it's kind of, there's a bit of a, um, uh, you kind of got to, you got to follow the cause and effect here. Uh, that's that's why up? I said focus on yield, right? Because yes, if, yeah. if, if you were a true investor, right, then there is value held in just the owning of correct, the asset. Correct, correct. If, if the only value is in the flip, then it's a different game that you're playing. But just know what game you're playing. Yeah, nicely put, mate. Nicely put. Um, so, yeah, like I think, you know, um, I would suspect that parts of the inner city... Here's, here's, my, here's my general take on property. Everyone's got to live in a house. It's either rented or it's owned. Uh, the, the most in-demand properties will increase at a faster rate because people with higher incomes can afford to use more of their incomes on those properties. In other words, 30% of 45 grand a year and 30% and of a million dollars a year, you can afford to spend more of your income as a proportion because you, once you've got a certain amount of income, you've paid your food, you've paid your everything else, you can afford to, you've got more disposable income, you can throw more of it at a mortgage should you choose. So if there's, if there's an ongoing auction for the best place in the corner at Point Piper or, uh, I don't know, a new farm in Queensland or Turak in Melbourne or insert your own area, I don't know, Perth or Adelaide or Darwin that well. Um, you know, it, there's a limited number of properties in the most desirable areas and there's a lot of pent-up latent purchasing power for those who want to you know, outbid each other for those places. Hmm. Outside that, I think it's, you know, housing is always a trade-off. How much do I pay? How far away am I? What are my costs? It's, it's, it's always a trade-off. I could have a smaller place closer in, a larger place further out. I could pay you know, less for a house, but spend more time on travel. That's the trade-off everyone makes all the time when you think about where do you want to live. So I, I, I suspect that, that we are having the hangover of the, of the sea change when a lot of people wanted to, uh, and so the price got bid up. I suspect that continues to ebb away. But I expect that as long as population keeps growing faster than supply, um, that underpins a decent amount of house price increase until the whole thing breaks, if it does. Um, just because you've got a limited number of houses and more people who want one, uh, again, supply and demand again for the third time in the last two days, that's mm -hmm. kind of what sees us get to the place we are. Yep, yep. It, it, but, but this is, like you say, with owner-occupier, it doesn't really matter what happens, right? Mm. Because you weren't looking to sell anyway and you've got the utility of, of the... Uh, house, so I, I just make that underline that point. That's why yield is so important. I think it's. I think most historically, that's what property investors are very much focused on. We've sort of detached, decoupled from that, if you will, in recent times. But I, I, I say it's similar because if the capital value of your place, like you know, according to some website, has gone up and then gone down, and all these things. Do you really care if there's a reliable right, exactly. good tenant in there that's just yeah. been paying the rent year after year after year and without without problem and increasing more or less in line with inflation? It's like, yeah, eh, I don't care. Yeah. I'm probably be worth more in the future. So that that way, if if you do see an unfortunate pullback in in prices, you've got that underlying underpinning, yeah. and that's why I'm always so just nervous of negative gearing, not just from the tax debate and how that might distort prices, but it just means that the 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 person undergoing under um, doing that strategy mm. is is 100% dependent on relatively yeah, right. near-term price changes. 
you're, you're overtly yeah. speculating on price. Yeah. And good luck to you. And it's worked well because prices have been going to the moon. But but those that have have, have a good good um, and sensible yield basis underpinning everything, mm. they're mm. going to be able to weather the storm just fine, just fine. Nice. Mate, let's finish off with a quick question from Christian, which I think it's worth asking. We don't talk a lot about this stuff sometimes. He just said, hi, gents. Thank you, as always, for putting the time aside to answer your listeners' questions. And thank you, most of all, for answering questions without any judgment. As I've heard you both say, even if you think it's a silly question, you're probably not the only one thinking it. That's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. My question is regarding management and the board of directors and their roles. We all know how important good management is to a business. I'd like to know roughly what each position does day to day, such as the CEO, CFO, and the ones I am most curious about, the chairman, the executive directors, and the non-executive directors. What is the difference and how are they appointed? I did notice there can be quite large differences in remuneration. So let's start with the the C-suite. CEO and CFO, what do they do? CEO runs the business. They make all the day-to-day big decisions. They're the, they're the head honcho in terms of running the operations of the business and of executing the strategy of the board. So we'll come back to that later. Yep. Um, the CFO is sort of the accounts person. They, they look after all the numbers, make sure all the finances are, are, are correct. So they're really the top two players in, in the organization in terms of um, how, they, how the business runs, runs itself, runs operations. So that's the C-suite. I'm going to add to that only briefly, mate, to uh, say a CEO's job is mostly internal but also partly external, uh, particularly for a listed company. Um, I've heard CEOs say they spend sometimes up to 40% of their time dealing with external stakeholders. uh, And Mm -hmm. by that, I'm really talking about fund managers and shareholders. Such a shame. That's true. Yeah, it is. Um, Think about them as the the conductor of the orchestra. In a management meeting, You'll have the CEO, the CFO, Chief Financial Officer. CEO is Chief Executive Officer, by the way, if people are wondering. Uh, CFO, Chief Financial Officer. These days, you'll normally have uh, someone in charge of sales and or marketing. There might be a different sales head, a different marketing head. Chief Marketing Officer, CMO. Chief Chief Operating operating. Officer sometimes, exactly. Uh, Chief Technology Officer, Chief Information Officer, usually in that room. Uh, Head of HR, Chief People Officer. Uh, HR manager, again, general manager of HR, there are all these different titles. You'll have someone there. And then depending on what sort of organization, you'll normally have some, uh, when we say operations officer, again, it depends on the company. In a sales and marketing organization, uh, you'll have that group. Uh, If it's a manufacturing or or distribution business, you'll have someone in charge of the physical operations. Um, So again, the titles vary, but if you're in charge of manufacturing or production um, or logistics, those sort of people can tend to be at at those meetings as well so that's kind of the that's that's the orchestra the ceo is the as the conductor um making the big calls about the strategy of the business and, and what needs to be done from there um holding those people accountable giving them support mm-hmm. uh helping deal with uh, often a very tense relationship between sales and marketing or or marketing operations or, or something else um yep. that, dealing with that putting out fires all that kind of stuff um, yeah, the CFO is the person who's responsible for making sure the numbers add up and, and helping people understand where the business is at, where it's going, and whether it can get there. Yep. Now, Let's the go board... To- yes, go. The board is... It took me longer than it should have to realize this, but the board are the... They're the power brokers, right? They're, they're in control. The board came about like way back in the day when you needed like... <laughs> it's almost like a union to represent the shareholders. Yeah, so right. there's, yeah, yeah, no. You know, and, and um, the head of the board, so it's a, cr- a collection of people, can be two people, could be 20 people, whatever size you like. 
um, usually around a dozen or so, depending on the size of the company. Um, and you you have a chairman who's kind of well, the, the boss of the board kind of thing, but they all have to vote on the big issues. They set, they basically hire and fire the CEO. Yep. So they're the CEO's boss, and they're not. And if you're an investor in the company. They're your representative. So they're there to represent shareholder interests. That's what they do. Mm-hmm. You have executive directors, which just means that not only are you on the board, but you also work within the company itself in the day-to-day. You're, you're employed by the business beyond your capacity as a board member. And a non-executive director is just like, I'm just on the board. My mm-hmm. commitment is to meet you know, for our monthly meetings and have strategy discussions and the rest of it, but I, I don't, I don't um, twiddle the dials and, and pull the levers in, inside the business. Um, you want to have a good board is all I'll say, because if you've got a bad CEO, I mean, that's not, not you don't want that either, but ultimately it's, it's the board's responsibility mm-hmm. to hire the right person and make sure that they're incentivized properly and that they continue to, and that you, and, you know, you give them the, the appropriate strategy to, to pursue and, and you hire well and that you, they boards don't get nearly enough scrutiny in my view. I think the CEO cops a lot and, and look, that's, the, that's the job. I'm not, don't have any sympathy <laughs> for them, but the board, the board is the, the 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 big boss, so to speak. Yeah, it's nicely done, mate. Uh, I oh oh sorry, one quick okay. thing. Oh, yeah, the yeah, reason please. why you'll see a lot of the difference in pay is that the CEO is coming in there nine to five, or hopefully more than nine to five <laughs> if they're a CEO, and on weekends and the rest of it. Yep. If you're a non-executive director, you're only doing you know I think you're you're contractually obliged to twelve meetings a year and mm-hmm. that that kind of thing. So you, you don't you don't work hours wise nearly as long as as the uh, the executives. It's also why when you see an executive director getting paid more than another director, it's because of that dual role. Yes. They, they, they might be the, often the CEO is an executive director. No, I say often. If you see executive directors, they tend to be CEOs. Because you see executive chairman as well, in which case CEO is also the chair. Yep. And so the executive is, I'm an executive in the business and a director and the chairman. Um, yep. And that's why the executive director should get paid. Nothing wrong with that. They have a day job. Exactly right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, a lot of a lot of a lot of people poo-poo that they say it needs to be more independent, more yeah. diversified, all yeah. the rest of it. I get that, but I I think if you've got someone who founded the business, owns a lot of shares in the business, you know, has run it for decades incredibly well, it's like you are more than welcome to be the chairman Correct. of the board right. and the CEO, exactly. right? Like I'm, it, yeah. it's a it's got they call it a sidecar investment, really. Like I'm just I'm with you, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. man. Like you 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 run the you run the, the uh, you're running this thing. I get it. Uh, whatever the title or whatever hat you happen to have on in a given day and I'm, I, I trust in you to, to deliver. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, Jerry Harvey's a great example, right? Polarizing. There you go. But if you buy Harvey Norman shares, you, you, in theory, you buy them because you think Jerry's doing a good job. Do you really want power to take away from Jerry? I mean, you know, some people might say, well, it'd be better without him. Good luck with that, but it's possible, I suppose. So I'm a Harvey Norman shareholder, by the way, and I'm happy to say, you know what? I don't always agree with what Jerry does, but I figure on balance, I'd rather have him running the business than not. So that's cool with me. Yeah. Um, Quick ones on the board. Uh, what can I add? The so I, I am a non-executive director of City Recital Hall, which is a uh, music venue in the city of Sydney. Uh, wonderful. Check, look it up online. Go and go and see a performance. We'd have some fantastic performance, uh, and it's a really cool venue. Which is not yes. meant as a plug. It was just more to structure it. Um, hey, that's your duty as a, a duty right, exactly. as a non-executive exactly. director to represent the interests of that institution. Un- unpaid for the record, by the way. Yeah. Um, voluntary voluntary gig. The so. Um, I agree with you, Andrew, about the strategy. I will say, this is not about serious idol hall at all, actually, but while the board are supposed to have carriage of the strategy, and while you're right, they should have good boards, the reason they should have good boards is because there are a lot of rubber stamp boards, 
and there are a lot of non-rubber stamp boards. And mm. so while the board, the CEO especially implement the board strategy, in practice, in my experience, again, not at the hall, but in other organizations, the CEO will say, here's our strategy board. What do you think? In other mm. words, please rubber stamp mm. this. Mm. Now, hopefully a good CEO will have the right strategy. So the board should maybe hopefully only be rubber stamp or at least be able to rubber stamp it because they agree or they can suggest change or they can discuss it and come up with something different. The board should absolutely override a CEO and say, yeah, no, we're not doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, a, if a merger or acquisition comes up, the CEO will go to the board with an with a, with idea. I would like to spend $100 million buying this business. Can I do that, please? Yes. Those are really big decisions. And as you say, mate, hiring and firing the CEO is, is a challenge. The hard mm-hmm. part with the CEO board relationship is on one hand, the it should be the board strategy on the other hand you want a ceo that you can trust to go and do the job because you meet them 12 times a year the other 353 days they're doing their own thing and you're hoping to hell they're doing it right mm-hmm. so it's kind of you know it's a really really interesting one your, your yeah. key point though is they are representative shareholders and that's the key one is if you're genuinely looking for looking after shareholders the board should be saying how is this building long-term value for the business what is that what is that strategy going to do to improve the value of the company um, are we doing the right things the right way? Hopefully the board has a really broad range of experience. You might have a legal person, a financial person, a, a salesperson. You, you might have an IT, uh, often these days, expert uh, who can provide that high level, effectively cons- internal consulting to a CEO. And a good CEO will use that too and say, hey, we're going to do this. I know you've done that before or you're in this area or do you have contacts? So a good CEO will use the board proactively too to basically improve Yep excuse me, the decisions of the business. It's a, it's a difficult one. It's more complex than it seems um, because the board wants to give the CEO some rope. Uh, you don't want to be, you know, you know if your decision has to be cleared by the board, but equally enough that it actually does the right thing and you get the right outcomes. That's why, back to your point, mate, a, the reason a good board is important is because if they get that right, you yeah. really turbocharge the business. If you get that oh, wrong, it's huge. you either leave a CEO to their own devices or you either, you, you, you micromanage them or yep. you end up with this really weird stalling somewhere in between where nothing gets done because you haven't given enough autonomy, but also you're not giving enough direction. And yep. so it ends up in this really weird, funny place in between. And yep, well said. And the the final point I'll make is that, the, so the the chief executive officer is um, there at, at the, by the good grace of the board. The board yes. is there by the good grace of us. How yes. to get on, you have, as a shareholder, you get to vote on whether they get to keep their job or not yep. each year. Uh, depending on when their term's up and they're up for re-election, et cetera, you get to do that. So it, it is it is a democracy of sorts amongst shareholders. You just get, it's not one person, one vote. It's like one share, one vote, but yeah. you, absolutely get a, you absolutely get a say. And again, I think that not enough of us as shareholders exercise our right yep. um, to do that. And, and it, it, I get it because it's easy to be defeatist there because yeah. usually yeah. proxy votes and the rest, you know, you, you can have a little bit of a protest vote, but it's not going to swing the dial. Correct. But it does send a bit of a message, I think. And um, yeah, focus on the focus on the board. The board's really important. I think what's what's disappointing and what well, what's exciting, I think, about the smaller end of uh, the ASX, which is where everyone knows I fish, they are tend to be much more concentrated boards with people who have been there yes. for a long yes. time and understand yes. it. When you get to the top ASX 50, right, <laughs> you've got people in there often that have no experience whatsoever yeah. in that particular industry. There could be various ex-premiers and politicians, for example, that they're there potentially because they can help open doors, but they're certainly <laughs> not there for their business experience. And you tend to get sort of these these roles that are more vanity roles than anything else. And, and I, I don't know if a lot of these very big company boards, a lot of the people there are really adding any value. 
at all, frankly. Mm. Um, and it's a shame. It's a shame that 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 it is it is like that. But again, you know, all I'm saying is, as an investor, now that now that you know how sort of the power dynamic works, <laughs> definitely look at the CEO and that. But also take some time to read the annual report and find out the backgrounds mm. of mm. of these people. What other businesses have they been involved with? That's often very interesting, by the way, as a research angle. Mm. And you see someone who's been on the board of five other companies and they've all gone to now, everyone has bad luck and some people operate in high-risk sort of industries, but it's certainly not as encouraging when you see someone who's like formally on the board of three other very successful companies. You're like, okay, it, it's not a guarantee, but that's a, that's a good signal. It's a good start. Um, just quickly too, how do you get on the board? You normally get invited by the current directors to join the board mm. uh, and then there is a vote, generally speaking, on whether you are the right person for the board. Um, occasionally, uh, a board member will... Uh, basically go to direct, go to shell directly like, can you please add me to the board mm -hmm. um, that often is, is the way there's been some grief with Endeavour Group recently you find a good well, that you can force yourself on if you buy enough shares. That's right. Yeah, you can. You can. So anybody can. There's a, there's <laughs> you go to an Elon Musk and walk in with a kitchen sink in your hands. You go, right. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. So that that's important. They can be they can be voted, voted off the board by being voted against. Also, there is those new relatively new remuneration report votes where mm. if a majority of shells vote against it twice in a row, the whole board is spilled and they all yep. have to then reapply for their positions. Um, often a lot of this stuff is done in the back rooms. So a director will speak to, and this is why the CEO speaks to the fund managers as well. And our fund managers like the director and want them to be there or not. Um, so that kind of, you know, the, the, yes. as much as the vote is public, a lot of the shoring up of support is done behind the scenes. And yep. again, the fundies tend to trust the current director. So if Andrew and I and someone else are on the board of strawman.com and we say, hey, we'd like uh, John Smith to join us on the board, uh, generally shareholders will have, will, have, will have sounded out the other shareholders about it anyway, or will have made sure that they're, they're keen and want to be part of it or, or whatever. Um, so a lot of it is rubber stamping, not because they don't care, but because a lot of the work's often been done in the background. Do you want to know a little fantasy I've had for a while here? <laughs> Careful. Is, Careful. And, I, and I would never, I, would, Careful. I, don't, I don't think I'd have the guts to do it. No, no, no. It's, it's, very, it's very safe. It's very PG. Um, we don't need to go to other dark places, let me tell you. <laughs> Please. Um, uh, there, I mean, believe it or not, there's you know, dozens of companies on the ASX with mm. the total market capitalization of under $5 million. Yeah, right. So I don't have the funds and the capital myself, <laughs> yeah. but I have sometimes fantasized of just getting yeah. a group of like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. 10 of us together and say, yeah. let's just buy up the shares gradually on this company. Wait till we have a, a controlling interest or a very powerful voting block. Mm. Vote ourselves onto the board and then run this thing the way that we know it should be. How arrogant a statement is that? But yeah. I just sort of thought- no, I just, I, 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 Yes, same. You know yeah. what I mean? I yeah. love yeah. that idea of just going, yeah. I-, I, I I'm not just investing passively in this company anymore. I am aggressively taking this over from the inside and I'm going to run it. I mean, fast forward, you know, a couple of years and there's just a big steaming crater <laughs> on the ground. Turns out from we all, after all. all the yeah. destruction yeah. that we yeah. wrought and, and, you know, carried <laughs> sunk, went down with the ship. But it's just always been like, it, yeah. it's not, I, I sometimes joke with my friends. It's like, we could all go in and buy an, a two bedroom apartment in Coogee. Or we could buy this business on the ASX yeah, wholesale, right. wholesale, like just the whole damn thing. That's absolutely true. You know, and it's like, well, yeah, they're making some money here. You know, it's, again, yeah. I don't have the guts to do it. I never convinced my wife, but it's like, <laughs> I, I think we could put a buyer's group together and this could actually be done. I know yeah, there are yeah. certain rules of yeah. disclosures and stuff above certain yeah. thresholds yeah. of ownership, but, you know, I, one, one of these days when I'm, when I'm, um, 
materially well off enough that I, I don't have to, <laughs> to, to work day to day. I'm, I might try that. I might that's try right, That's right. Are you in? I'm in. I'm in. Count, count yeah. me in, mate. Hey, excellent. We're going to syndicate together. You'll hear it here first when we, uh, exactly when we find out. And, and we will be referred to as the syndicate. The syndicate. Just, just that. <laughs> just the syndicate. I love it. I love it. Uh, we'll either end up being, uh, I don't know, Twiggy Forest or Christmas case. We haven't quite worked out one yet. Of one two. or the other. <laughs> no in between. Yeah. All right. I reckon we are done. This has gone a long time, but it's been lots of fun as always. Mate, uh, will you come back next Friday? 100%. Awesome. Until then, enjoy your week and full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.